Go ahead and find Mark chapter 11 with me. Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. I'm afraid that, uh, that symbolism is something that we're losing touch with as a culture. We've kind of become a very right-brained culture. We're uh, very obsessed with science and technology, and we're derisive of, of sort of other sorts of things, like maybe reading fiction or poetry, that sort of thing. You see this in schools sometimes that often tout their, their STEM programs, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and all of that. And falling by the wayside are, are other, sorts of, uh, other sorts of subjects. I think the rise of secularism and materialism means increasingly we've believed the lie that the only things that are real and are valuable are the things that you can see and the things that you can touch. Less people than ever have a sense of the sacred and a sense of the unseen realities that symbols represent. But ancient peoples and God's people have always found symbolism to be very important. So let me just give you one sort of modern example of how this plays out, of which there are many an example of symbolism, which used to be very important and, and uh, important to people, but is less so now. For, for example, more people than ever are choosing to be cremated. Um, it was unheard of in the West until, until pretty recently. It was practiced mainly in the East and Eastern religions like Hinduism. And I understand many people choose that for economic reasons, and I'm, this is no moral issue or anything like that. I find no fault with it. I'm just pointing out there's a symbolism here that we're losing touch with. For centuries, Christians buried their dead. They often buried them facing in the direction they believed Jesus would return in, in symbolic anticipation of the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, and as a reminder to the living that the dead really will be raised because Jesus really will return. It's simply an illustration of a rich symbolism that is not quite so resonant with us today as it was in past generations. Well, I'm asking you to turn to Mark chapter 11. In Mark 11, there are three stories which are rich in symbolic significance. In each of these stories, Jesus uses symbolic acts to underline certain aspects of his work and to underline exactly who he is and what he's here to do. And if we do not appreciate symbolism, we will not appreciate Mark 11. And so my mission this morning is quite simple, to appreciate the symbolism in Mark chapter 11. So let's begin in the first story, which shows us, it's a symbolic act that shows us Jesus as king. So when we arrive in Mark 11, we really arrive in sort of two places. Geographically, we arrive in the city of Jerusalem, where the remainder of the events of the Gospel of Mark will take place. And chronologically in Mark 11, we've arrived at the final week of Jesus' life. And so this is Mark 11 and verse 1. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those were standing, uh, and some of those standing there said to them, "What are you doing, untying the colt?" And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so Jesus here is approaching Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives, and once there, he sends two disciples into a nearby village to bring a young, untrained colt to him. Jesus, I think, is exercising his foreknowledge in this story. He knows where they will find it. He knows it's never been sat on before, and he has an answer to give for the people who question them about taking it. Now, the account of what actually happens unfolds exactly as Jesus said would happen. They went to the village, they untie it, and those told those who questioned exactly what Jesus told them to say. And when they procure the animal, Jesus sits on it, and he walks into Jerusalem sitting on it. And as he enters the city, he is given a welcome befitting a king. By this time, Jesus' fame has spread far and wide. He's been teaching and healing and doing great works for the last three years. Everyone knows who Jesus is. He is immensely popular, and this is Passover week. The city of Jerusalem is filled with literally millions of people, millions of religious pilgrims, and what they have on their mind in this time is the Passover. What they have in their mind is Exodus. What they have in their mind is liberation. What they have in their mind is the Messiah, a new Moses who will come and deliver us. And they see Jesus coming and they connect the dots. And they begin spreading their cloaks on the road before Jesus, which is a very kingly scene. There's a story in 2 Kings 9. Jehu was anointed king of Israel and listen to what happens. In haste, every man of them took his garment and put, put, uh, put it under him on his steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jesus is king. When you lay your garments in front of, in front of a king so he doesn't have to walk on the ground, that is a very honorific thing to do. Their words that they're singing in verses 9 and 10 are taken directly from Psalm 118. It's a psalm that every Jew would have known by heart and would have been at the forefront of their minds. Uh, Psalms 113 to 118, the Jews sung every Passover. Hosanna is an expression invoking God's salvation. Literally, it means God saves or save us. What they're really doing is sort of summarizing Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. So what's this all about? Yes, Jesus walks in and people think he's king. And that's all we have to say? I don't think so. What's this all about? Why is it so all-fired important for Jesus to ride a donkey into Jerusalem? And the answer is symbolism. Looking at a few Old Testament texts, I think, sheds light on exactly what Jesus is up to and, and, and summarizes what we're supposed to take from this. So first of all, let me just take a small detail. Verse 2, the animal must be one on which no one has ever sat is a significant detail, I think. The law of Moses said an animal that was to be devoted to a sacred purpose must be one that had never been put to ordinary use. Animals used in God's service must have never worn a yoke, for example. What Jesus is saying when he says you have to get one that has never been sat on before, what he's saying is God needs a donkey. This donkey is sanctified to the Lord. But I think more on the nose, Jesus' actions here is, are evoking two Old Testament passages. The first is from Genesis 49. In Genesis 49, before Jacob dies, you remember he blesses each of his sons. And many of his blessings to them speak prophetically about what will come from their descendants. And when he gets to his son Judah, he speaks of a king who will come from 
the lineage of Judah. So this is Genesis 49 and verse 10. He says, of this descendant of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And so he prophesies of a descendant from Judah who would be king, uh, whose rule would never end. And in that prophecy, the ruler has a colt of a donkey. And so when Jesus, who just so happens to be from the tribe of Judah, when Jesus summons a colt of a donkey, what do you think he's claiming about himself? The other Old Testament passage that speaks of a kingly Messiah who would rescue God's people and bring peace and connects the donkey to all of that is Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And so the prophet says here, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation as he. Remember Hosanna, God save. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus summons a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem on that animal, what do you think he's saying about himself? Now, there is also sort of a political background to the symbolism. Entering the gates of a city mounted on an animal, surrounded by onlookers singing your praises, this is a scene only a king would ever experience. And kings would often use symbolism to communicate to their onlookers when entering a city this way. So ancient kings would sometimes enter a city riding on a great horse. And when he rode on a horse, what it meant was that he came as a warrior or as a conqueror. He had just come back from battle and he had conquered, which is symbolically makes sense. Horses are well-suited for battle. That's what you ride into battle. But what sometimes happened was kings would enter a city riding on a donkey. And the thing about a donkey, I don't know that much about them, is they're not particularly well-suited for battle. You're not going to go anywhere too fast on one of them. And when the king entered the city on a donkey, he meant to communicate that he came in peace, that things were at peace, his kingdom was at peace. There's an example of this in 2 Samuel 19. Mephibosheth, he was the son of, of Saul, of King Saul, who was deceased. And he came to David to plead for mercy. He was convinced David would, would kill him and execute him. And as a sort of a sign of his, of his coming in peace, not trying to rival David in any way, it's a sign of his seeking of mercy. The text says he rides on a donkey as he goes and approaches David. It's a gesture of peace. So what you have in this story is Jesus self-consciously, first of all, making a claim on being God's anointed king, of being the descendant of Judah who the, decept who the scepter would never depart from. He's the ruler from Judah. He's Zechariah's messianic savior. And yet at the same time, he makes these claims in a way that undermines the fervent expectations of the crowd. Jesus is not the warrior Messiah of Israel's dreams. He is not here to wage war against Rome. He's not here to kill a bunch of Gentiles. He's not here to restore Israel's glorious independence. He's not here to be another Judas Maccabeus, who in the intertestamental period violently drove, violently drove the Gentiles out of Jerusalem. He's not here to be that. If he wanted to communicate that's who he was, he would have ridden, he would have ridden a horse. But instead, he rides a donkey. And what he's saying in this final week of his life is that he is here to suffer and not to conquer. He is here to save the Gentiles, not decimate them. 
He is here to be killed, not to kill. It's a story that symbolically reveals that Jesus is God's king and that his mission as king is to bring peace. Which brings us to number two. We have another symbolic story which tells us something about Jesus as judge. Verse 12, this is, for my money, one of the oddest and most puzzling stories uh, in the Gospels. This is verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. So here they're making about the two-mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem uh, on the following day, and they come upon a fig tree, which from afar looked healthy, looked productive. And Jesus approaches the tree to see if there are any figs on it, but he finds that the tree only has leaves and no fruit. And so Jesus says to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Down in verse 20, and after the next paragraph, they will return to this tree and find that it is withered, that his words were, were effective for something. They caused the tree to wither. Now, the detail in verse 13 that it was not the season for figs kind of confounds us a little bit. Why would Jesus expect to find a fig when it wasn't fig season and then get mad that there weren't figs when it wasn't even fig season? I am told that figs get ripe in Palestine around June, around June. These events take place just before Passover, which is in late March, early April. So we're about two months out from what normal fig season is. So there would not have been ripe figs on the tree. They wouldn't have expected to see that. However, I am also told that even to this day on the Mount of Olives, fig trees can be seen in leaf in early spring. And before even leaves appear, there ought to be early green figs on the tree. Not ripe yet, but early green ones. And so... While it was not the season for ripened figs, the tree ought to have had early unripe ones if it really was a healthy fruit-bearing tree. The fact that it doesn't means something is wrong with it. Now, what do we make of this? The fact that Jesus gets mad at a tree and Jesus curses a tree. I think the first thing that helps us make sense of the story is to dip into the prophets a little bit. See, the Old Testament prophets did not just teach abstract truths and give lectures and sermons. They often taught with object lessons, and sometimes really outrageous ones, that were we to witness them, we would probably shield the eyes of our children. They didn't just tell, they showed. They acted out the judgments they warned of. So just a few examples of the prophets doing things, not just saying things, but doing things. Isaiah 20 and verse 3. Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. He didn't just say God was going to judge these nations. He acted out the desolation that was going to fall on them. They wouldn't even have clothes to wear. Jeremiah 13. God commands Jeremiah to bury a loincloth by the Euphrates River and then go back sometime later and dig it up when it was spoiled and good for nothing. And this, he said, was a symbol of what happened, what would happen to Judah and what had happened in Judah. That like that loincloth, they were supposed to cling closely and intimately to God. But then, like the spoiled loincloth, they were good for nothing now. Or in Ezekiel 4, 
God told Ezekiel to build a model of Jerusalem. And then he was to put siege works and battering rams around those walls. And then he was to lay on his left side for 390 days, representing Israel's exile. And then he was to lay on his right side for 40 days, representing Judah's exile. And also during that time, he was to eat bread that had been cooked over dung, symbolizing the uncleanness of God's people. What I'm saying is Jesus' actions are a part of this tradition. They're this sort of thing. He is not just saying some bad things are going to happen. He's not just saying judgment is coming. He is acting out the judgment. So what exactly is he saying? What does the fig tree represent? Again, we must look at the Old Testament prophets. Because the prophets often spoke of the fig tree as a way of referring to Israel's state, Israel's health, Israel's productiveness, Israel's fruitfulness, Israel's status before God. And so if a prophet came along and said a fig tree was going to be destroyed, what were they talking about? They were talking about the destruction and judgment against Israel. So in Jeremiah 8, in a description of the faithlessness and treachery of Judah, God says this, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. In other words, my people have nothing to offer me. There's no righteousness, there's no holiness, there's no worship, there's no reverence. I go to my people and I look to see if there's anything there and there's nothing. The prophet Micah describes the evil of God's people. The lack of honesty, the violence and bloodshed, the corruption, the breakdown of the family. And he says this in Micah 7 and verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when, grapes, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, he says. No first ripe fig my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. In verse 4, he says, The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. In fact, Mark, Mark may be actually referencing verse 1 specifically, this line, There is no first ripe fig my soul desires. Jesus went and sought a first ripe fig. The early green ones, there was none. There were none to be, to be seen. There should have been one, but there wasn't. Even in, in Jesus' own ministry in Luke 13, he tells a parable about a barren fig tree along these lines. When a fig tree continually bears no fruit for its owner, there comes a time when the owner has to say, there's just no value in having this tree and expending resources toward it. And so he cuts it down, which is what he's saying God is getting ready to do with Israel. The fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus' day. And what happens to the tree symbolizes the faith that awaits Jerusalem. It's a subject Jesus will take up at length in chapter 13 and Mark 13. And so the fig tree is cursed in verse 14. In verse 20, it will be found withered when they revisit it. Which brings us to the third story. In between the, the fig tree being cursed and the fig tree withered, sandwiched in between those, is Jesus condemning Israel's evil and the fruitlessness of Israel when he condemns the temple. So that brings us to the third symbolic act, which declares Jesus as God. This is a passage about Israel's barrenness, what we've been talking about. Israel has leaves like the tree. They have signs of piety, outward signs. But when you get up close, when you actually go into the temple, there's nothing real there. There's nothing nourishing happening there. There's nothing life-giving about their religion. This is verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, seat, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So these events take place uh, around the court of the Gentiles. In verses 15 and 16, he mentions three things happening there. There is, number one, money changing. There is, number two, the selling of doves. And then, number three, the sort of using the court as a thoroughfare, I think. So let's just briefly talk about each of those. There's money changing. Um, to get along in the, in the Roman world, you needed Roman currency to do business, basically. But if you're a Jew and you're trying to be faithful to the law of Moses, you also need some Jewish currency. Because when the law of Moses gives an exact monetary value to be paid in like an offering or something in the temple, it gives it in shekels, which is a, a, a Jewish denomination. And so currency exchange is going to be something that's happening. And I don't think Jesus has a problem with currency exchange per se. What he has a problem with is where currency exchange is happening. There's the selling of doves. Doves were, were used in temple worship as a burnt offering, for example, for those too poor to afford a lamb for some of the offerings, and they could substitute a dove, a cheaper, cheaper sacrifice. Doves were used in the cleansing of lepers in those ceremonies and in several other cleansing and purification rituals. I don't think Jesus has a problem with buying doves. I think he has a problem with where it's being done. And then this one's more subtle, but verse 16 hints at it that they're using the court of the Gentiles as sort of a thoroughfare. Verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And so they were sort of using the court of the Gentiles as a convenient thoroughfare to get from one side of the temple complex to another, sort of a shortcut. They felt free to cut through. It was not being treated as the holy place that it was. And so Jesus enters this building that's supposed to be a holy place where God's presence dwells, a place of prayer, a place of worship. And he finds that it's been turned into a market slash bazaar slash bank. Common business is being done in this holy place. Not only that, the actual activities meant for this place were being hindered. The court of the Gentiles was supposed to be the place where the Gentiles who revered the God of Israel could come and worship God. And so just imagine a, a, a God-seeking Gentile coming to the temple, trying desperately to draw near to what he has found to be the one true God perhaps. And he goes to worship only to be crowded out or distracted by the sounds of clanging coins and bargaining and animal noises and people cutting through back and forth. Can you now understand the drastic acts of Jesus, the overturning of the tables and the seats, driving people out, not allowing anyone to walk through anymore? This is the zeal of Phineas, who in Numbers 25 put a stop to the rampant rebellion of God's people. What's happening here is very serious. In verse 17, he quotes from two Old Testament texts. The first is Isaiah 56 and verse 7, when he says, My house shall be, called a ho shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. If you read all of Isaiah 56, he speaks of uh, salvation being available to everyone, to the outsider and the foreigner. God's will ultimately is for all men, not just Israel, but all men, to join together in worship. He wants all people to join themselves to the Lord. 
all people to worship him and love him and keep his covenant and make sacrifices. And he envisions a place where they can all do that together. The temple in the Old Testament was supposed to be that place. And God specifically made a court for the Gentiles within the temple so that they could come draw near to him. But then he says, the second part is a quote of Jeremiah 17 and verse 11, but you have made it a den of robbers. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You have made a den of robbers. In Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah speaks of men who steal and who murder and commit adultery and lie and worship Baal. And then they have the gall to show up at the temple and to cry out for God to deliver them. It's in that context God asks this. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? For a long time I didn't fully understand what it was that meant to be a den of robbers. I thought just a place of, for, with, you know, full of bad guys. But the image of a den of robbers is really something like a hideout, a place of refuge for criminals. And the idea is these evil men who are doing all this criminal sinful behavior in their lives, doing whatever they want, feel like they can come and use the temple as their den of safety. They feel like they can come take refuge in the temple and they can cry out to God and they can get their forgiveness and everything will be okay and we can keep being criminals. We'll come here for safety and we'll get safe and then we'll go out and do some more crime. It was supposed to be a place of worship. You made a den of robbers, a way of baptizing your sin so you can go out and do more of it. God said it wasn't okay in Jeremiah and Jesus says it's not okay. It's not okay in his day. The cleansing of the temple is an act that says, this is my house, and these are my people, and I will not put up with you defiling the holy things that are supposed to be happening here. What he's saying to them is, you don't have a right to rearrange the furniture in someone else's house. It's my house, and you filled it with greedy bankers and squawking animals, and the people who want to worship here cannot, and it stops now. There's one more relevant Old Testament text I want to bring to your attention. Zechariah 14 speaks of a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, is a common line of the prophets, a day of judgment, a day when God acts to do something about the evil that is so rampant, to do something to save his people. And so the wicked are judged, and the righteous from all nations will be able to gather together to worship the one true God. And I want you to listen to the description Zechariah makes of that coming day. He says, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. And listen here. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Jesus symbolically says, that day is on the verge of arriving. That day is coming. The traitors will be expelled. The wicked will be judged. The fruitless fig trees will all wither. And all who actually want to worship and all who actually want to laud the one true God, the one true King of earth, will be able to. Mark 11 is a chapter full of symbolism. That's the main message I have. Jesus enters on a donkey. Jesus is a king who comes in peace. He curses a fig tree, which is to say he will act as judge against faithless Israel. And Jesus cleanses the temple, which is to say Jesus is God and the temple is his house. And there's coming a day, a day of the Lord, when the traitors will no longer be able to use the house of the Lord and the nations can re-enter and worship God. 
Jesus says, that day is coming. Repent and believe in me. Jesus is king. Jesus is judge. And Jesus is God. Honor him. Fear him. Worship him. And so the question we end with is, do you need to repent of your lack of honor? Of your lack of of your obedience to him? Do you need to repent of your fruitlessness before him? That there are outward superficial signs of your piety, but you get up close and there's nothing there. Do you need to repent of your lack of reverence, true reverence toward him? Have you been using his house as a den of thieves, a way to get clean so you can go out and do more crime? Do you need to repent? Honor him, fear him, and worship him, your king, your judge, and your God. If you need to repent, if you need to come and to put on Christ, do so now as we stand and sing. Lord, you may pray Wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you do service for Jesus? your king. There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily in praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Working power in the prayer.